0: Into the Mothlight. Into, Into the Mothlight
1: podcast. This time on Into the Mothlight, an interview with the artist filmmaker Demel Coy. Demelza is a senior lecturer in filmmaking at Liverpool John Moores University here in the UK. Her work is presented at film festivals, museums, art exhibitions and conferences. She's previously taught at Edinburgh College of Art and worked at the Scottish Documentary Institute. Her new film, Wolves from Above, won the grand prize at the 2019 Ann Arbour Film Festival and is described as a meditation on a pack of wolves filmed from the air. I met Demelza when she visited Scotland to present Wolves from Above as an installation, as part of the Alchemy Film and Arts project Forage Image, exploring the relationship between artists, landscapes and environment. More on that later. I started the interview by asking Demelza about her early experiences as an artist.
0: Into the Moth Light. The most honest answers, I think, in high school when I was making silly stop motion films with my friend Baban Sawyers. And uh, we also made the video for the school trip and it started from then and I never stopped doing it and I believe I was about 16
1: And so if if you were doing animation um, what sort of things were influencing you at the the time? Was it kind of Dutch children's television or were you digging a little bit deeper into some of the classic um, animation at that point?
0: No, I knew absolutely nothing about animation or art film, nothing at all it was just for fun and we were interested in um, making be, with stop motion you, you're animating things that are still and that was the main thing and to make jokes uh, so th- there was it was just for fun
1: How do things progress from there?
0: I was always wondering whether I should go into fiction filmmaking or documentary I was really struggling with that I knew that I didn't want to go to film school straight away because I was very young and I wanted to learn something else first so I studied a few things And things started to change when I saw Darwin's Nightmare, the documentary. I'd never seen anything like it. And when I saw that film, I realized that there was something I could do as well. It spoke to me, but it was still very unique. It was very much that film. But I, I, I didn't realize before seeing that film that there were so many ways of making documentary, making art, and that it was such a versatile medium. So since Darwin's Nightmare, I thought that my way of looking at the world could find its way in film.
1: And did you have access to to that sort of film? Um, I mean, obviously, you know, see things in television. But uh, in the Netherlands, was there a culture of being able to go to cinema and and see work like that, for example?
0: Absolutely, and better um, Dutch television shows quite wild and experimental uh, documentary films. So I saw that film on TV actually. They were also always broadcast. Uh, or give a selection of their itfa uh, films so no dutch tv is actually uh, especially the, the national channels are very good for that
1: mm-hmm. yeah instead of going straight to film school you went and did your m.a in philosophy what was the, the thinking of um, studying that and did you uh, just assume that that would fit into your filmmaking practice at some point
0: Well, actually, it starts with uh, a first-year degree in psychology followed by a bachelor in archaeology. And during the bachelor in archaeology, I did a minor in philosophy, which then gave me access to philosophy. So the the question really is, why did you start to study psychology? And that was because I wanted to learn about the human mind. And yes, I thought that would feed into my filmmaking, because I did already know then that I really, really wanted to make films. And it was wonderful, uh, but I quit it because it was very much geared towards becoming a therapist or a scientist. And I didn't want either.
1: Mm-hmm. At what stage did you go back to to thinking about documentary filmmaking and, 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 and a way of telling a story that was specific to you and your approach to it?
0: What was very good during the psychology and also philosophy degrees that they did show some films. And so throughout my studies, I I never lost track of this idea that I wanted to make film. Not become a filmmaker. That's something different. I wanted to make film and make art. Um, And seeing films like Tarnation... And um, I forgot what the title of the film is... But Hedy Hodingman made a film about um, the cemetery in Paris... That was very impactful. It was just an ongoing thing. I never lost track of that I wanted to make film and art. I remember... When I realized that I could make films, I I was very young and I was walking in the corridor of um, my high school alone and they always asked us what we wanted to become when we were old but no one ever will tell you, you know, why don't you become a filmmaker because that's, that's not a career path your parents or anyone else wishes for you. Um, but we did watch a lot of films, uh, both at my dad's place, and my mum always listens to listens to uh, to films. Um, and then I realised, you know what? Why don't I make films? Which I still find a very silly thought because I had never worked with film. I maybe I took some photographs, but it was it just felt right. And then I just pursued that idea, and it just seems stupid because I had no reason to think that I would be any good at it.
1: And at what point did you think actually probably could be quite good at this and start to think coherently about the first um, sort of proper, if you like, documentary that you wanted to make?
0: I never thought, you know what, I could be good at this, but I just really enjoyed doing it and that is still very important to me. Um, I make films because I enjoy making, uh, making those films. It's not entirely the whole story because I also felt I wanted to express myself and um, film film seemed the right way but I also paint and draw Mm -hmm. Um, I do other other things as well I suppose when I started applying for the uh, MA um, so after philosophy I did an MA um, documentary about practice in London and I suppose being accepted on the degree was a, a confidence boost. And there was a, I did do a course at university in, I think it was within sociology or anthropology. Um, they offered filmmaking um, and uh, I just really enjoyed it. That, so yeah, it was an on, ongoing process. I really think that if you decide to be an artist or a filmmaker, it's, it's a lifelong commitment. It's not something you dip in and out of, it's, it's uh, you fall in love and when, when it's there, it it holds it holds you there.
1: Into the light Into the
0: mothlight podcast.
1: In 2012, milza made the View from Here. This was about a man called Peter Nelson, a man with a special gift that enables him to communicate with animals, both alive and dead. The film takes you on a journey to his magical everyday life and witnesses the death of one of his beloved animals. Given Demel's interest in the way the mind works, I asked her what it was about Peter that she wanted to explore.
0: The reason why I um, agreed to make the film is because he let me film that someone would euthanise his horse. So that was the reason I, I stuck with it and then along the way I found out that he qu- had quite a unique perspective on life and death and at the time I'd already started my PhD which was then about uh, crossing the border between life and death and I was reading Aporius by uh, Jacques Derrida and that is also about uh, seeing beyond the human experience horizon and so th- peter had enough ingredients so the fact that he has a unique perspective life and death he he says he can remember thou or no he can remember many of his past lives and he's been reincarnated thousands of times the fact that i could film a death a killing uh, and also very importantly and that runs throughout all the films that i make i like the place very much Mm -hmm. place is very important my filmmaking practice. If I don't like the place, if I don't want to be there, then I can't live in my own film space and for me it's always about translating reality to to film, so if I don't like that reality, I can't make the film
1: And that maybe brings us on to Graminoids from 2014 which I think is one of the first films uh, I saw from you and I'm going to quote here from Harriet Warman uh, uh, writing in in Cineview from 2014 and Harriet somebody that we've interviewed on the podcast as well she writes "Graminoids in its silver, black and white cinematography make the invisible visible and the wind passing over the grass on Arthur's seat appear like the waves of a rough sea and a piece in which image and sound are composed seamlessly together to rapturous effect so th- this film is presented in black and white um, and uh, obviously looks at Arthur C in Edinburgh And um, what was it about that place and that landscape that appealed to you?
0: Well Lars and I are deeply in love with Edinburgh so th- the film it didn't start out as a love letter to Edinburgh and Arthur C but it, is, it, it has become that a little bit Um, over the years um, what drew us to present it in this way was um, the, the wind and the grass and the interplay and initially I wanted to make a video for a sound piece that Lars had made a very electronic super heavy piece very digital and the the speed the rhythm of that piece of music fitted the rhythm of the grass blades Um, Not waving in the air But like racing in the air um, In the wind But along the way We we got rid of the soundtrack And replaced it with something That was more harmonious And and emphasized the relation Between sound and image So what made us What drew us to that place Is sheer beauty and, And love for the place And The film is maybe Not so much about love It's quite mysterious to some people some people find it sad but we were aware of the history of of the place and um according to legends people have died and so all these ideas played in 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 our minds it wasn't just about the now we had a sense that the wind and the grass was was there or had been there for for many centuries and we we wanted to give a sense of a time beyond the now and and a way of experiencing that place that isn't like many tourists who do—you know—they do pop up on top of Arthur's Seat and then they, it's very beautiful, and then it go down. But we focus on the on the valley actually mm-hmm. um, more so.
1: The way it is photographed is is beautiful to look at, but um, it, it could be a silent piece, and and also the soundtrack for it could act as a standalone soundscape as well. So um, you mentioned Lars who probably deserves a podcast interview in his own right but tell me a little about him and his approach to sound and how you collaborate on a project like this
0: what often happens is that he makes something utterly beautiful and then i want to make image for it because uh, the way he designs sound and composes music it it always plays with time and um, it's very personal and although he often plays with um systems, and he 's quite rational in that respect The the resulting sounds are emotional, and I relate to that um, and when we make a piece it 's uh, quite organic it 's not as done as', as done traditionally that you picture lock a picture of uh, a film and then a soundtrack is made, but we keep both open and from graminoids actually at some point because I was editing the film, he got tired of me being super picky about where the, the cut should be and where a particular note should come in, that he just gave me all the loose notes, but he knew it was in a particular um, chord, um, and so I, I could piece the, the start and ends of the notes together with the image. I believe there is friction where we operate mm-hmm. and yeah, we're often very scared to show each other pieces because we know that if the other doesn't think it's right mm-hmm. something is wrong with it and um, making a film is really hard and there's, uh, there's th- there will for every production there will be a moment that is tough um, so yeah I wouldn't say it's without friction ever but mm-hmm. it's, it is uh, it's fluent yeah we can read each other really well yeah.
1: mm-hmm. I want to ask you a little bit about The Breeder, um, a documentary from 2017. A new app that makes it easy for you to design and order your own pets. Um, what was the... It's a fascinating piece. What, what was the starting point for that particular documentary?
0: I have to admit, embarrassingly so, that I watch videos of animals online on YouTube like million other people's people do or maybe it's just a handful of people who watch them a million times um, and I was drawn to animals that were missing legs or had other um, complications and I thought that was rather bizarre and I started researching why that would be and It turns out, this is quite a a long explanation. So I have to start again. In the breeder, what happens is that an app designer comes to a scientist-turned-breeder. And she uses genetic modification to design the pet of your dreams. And when you get to see the app, it turns out that you can make all these bizarre uh, configurations. And one of them is the desk animal. So it's an animal without any legs. And the film combines past breeding practices. Uh, Through selective breeding, we've created pets that have retained quite bizarre uh, features, like extremely long fur, or um, cows can produce huge quantities of milk. Uh, But uh, pedigree animals usually uh, retain invisible disabilities, like premature cancer and things like that. So in the past through selective breeding we've we've done quite horrific things to animals combined with the perspective on the future that genetic modification is now possible so selective breeding can become genetic modification and there's another ingredient and those are cuteness aesthetics so Lawrence has identified what we humans find cute and they uh, are the same as how w- what we find cute in babies. So a big round face, large eyes, short limbs, squishy limb um, softness. And these features are al- also found in um, pets. And they also kind of relate to how we've made animals this... Uh, um, uh, retain disability so lots of dogs um, have protruding eyes and that's because their skull is quite small but the brain still needs space so that the eyes are popping out and they probably have uh, headaches so it's it's quite complicated it combines uh, a lot of things but the simplest way of putting it is that it's a precautionary tale and and shows us that by uh, that we can cause a lot of harm um, without knowing it and even worse even by trying to be good we can cause harm Mm -hmm. Um, so how it started is um, by um, internet browsing, using the internet looking at pet pet, uh, videos or animals
1: I mean it is a massive subject and I can imagine it could be quite emotive as well The, 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 the film's 12 minutes long um, and I was interested in the way that you used um, black and white footage at first I thought it was actually archive footage until I noticed that the cars were quite modern but they, it looked like age film and then you have the kind of a more sort of traditional approach to, to kind of documentary filmmaking and, and with an expert asking the questions so how did you start to get you know, these ideas um, into a, a way that you could shoot and present back?
0: so the biggest challenge was to combine all these different aspects and um how did we do it well and anticipate it so we waited with making the animations until we have the uh, archive material confirmed which we got from youtube and i turned that black and white to make it more uniform because Mm -hmm. it's filmed by um, non-professional um Filmmakers, or just normal people, and we waited there's one moment that um, works quite well. I think it's you see the view of, of the app and you see the slider move so that the there's a dog that only has its hind legs, then it stands up and then turns around, and then there's a cut to a real dog that is also missing. Uh, legs, and it suggests that the app that is already usable, that that those animals have already been made. So in writing the script, we actively uh, anticipated that all these different materials had to fit together. So we looked at shape, and we looked at how narrative feeds into these different layers.
1: Into the Mos Light podcast. Into the Mos Light podcast. So let's go from um, genetically modified animals to, to animals... In their natural habitat and natural environment, um, tell me about um, your most recent work, Wolves from Above.
0: It's funny that you say genetically modified to animals in the natural habitat, because Wolves from Above is not filmed in the wild. It's filmed in a in a park, so the wolves are enclosed, but I'm not showing the enclosure. And film works in a way that the viewer reconstructs the narrative through the ingredients that you give them so if you don't give them enclosure they won't put that in their reconstruction so the viewer thinks that they are wild wolves Mm -hmm. uh, but they're not Um, the project it's a very short film five and a half minutes I didn't anticipate making that it came out of a bigger project that I call Wolf Park that's a working title and i released it because i was going through hours and hours of drone material and these five and a half minutes had a clear beginning middle and end therefore a structure therefore could be a film and i cut it i had an idea for what the sound design should do i had recorded a sound on location and then last reconstructed that sound because obviously a drone flies up in the air and is super noisy. So when you work with a drone, you can't record sync sound. Mm -hmm. So that's often why you see it in films with music. Otherwise, you would have to reconstruct it. So we uh, reconstructed all that audio. And the drone is quite far away from the wolves at first, but the sound is consistently really, really nearby, very close. And that is because I want to establish a very physical... A reaction between a connection between the viewer and uh, the wolves and the reason why it is from such a strange angle is because I'm hoping that I'm presenting a new kind of wolf and there are different ways that I'm, I'm trying to do this so one is by literally filming it from a different perspective but then I've got hours of drone footage and only this did exactly the right things so another thing that happens in the film is that the wolves look up so they, they actively engage in, a, in a interaction with the viewer if you, you know, have the suspension of disbelief that you forget that there is a drone and that you are, may be flying up in the air uh, so they look up at the sky and also there are moments when they move in exact unison there's a, a kind of a choreography and their patterns you can tell by the lines in the grass they are not random and they're not wild um, <laughs> because you can see that they walk the same paths over and over again and there is um, in the formation you can see trapezoid forms and sometimes they're in a, str- in a perfect line it almost looks like perhaps they were animated, uh, they're not it's patients at work there uh, but yeah so th- it's hours of footage and, and these five and a half minutes just had everything coming together so that I could show that wolves are more than those vicious hunters uh, that you see in traditional wildlife films. Mm
1: -hmm. You could have presented this with all kinds of pack animals I I guess to a a degree but was it important for you to look at wolves in particular? Was that always the idea for for something that you could apply um, a fresh way of looking through drone footage?
0: there's something strange and unique about wolves they they are the first animals that were domesticated and turned into a dog and there's something about their eyes that we can relate to there's a mystery there but also a recognition so when a wolf looks into the camera there it's almost like you're reaching halfway through not quite but you, you know that there's a sentience and that is the case with quite a lot of animals but not all of them uh, mammals generally are easier for that um, yeah the, I, I didn't really I didn't particularly like wolves to begin with um, not more than any other animal but I have to admit that now that I've spent so much time with them that I actually really like them and they they are fascinating and enigmatic and they are people in the sense that they are not that are people but they are characters they really have their unique ways of being um, they clearly individuals as well as PAC members.
1: So obviously quite a long process to, to get the film to present it as a, as a single screen work. And then tell me a little bit about the thought processes to um, present it as, as an installation that we're going to see over the weekend here in Hoig.
0: So I made the film as a film intended for a cinema screen. And then I applied for the uh, Wroclaw Media Art Biennial, and they asked me the question, "How would you like your work to be displayed?" And that simple question got me thinking, and I thought, you know what? Because the wolves are looking up, and it's filmed from above, why don't we play with that? So I suggested a floor projection, and they didn't. Well, they accepted the film, but they didn't tell me that the. They actually did that. So when I entered the exhibition space in the beautiful uh, four-dome pavilion, it was so stunning, and it was so strange as well. Actually, much better than um, a cinema projection. It made much more sense. And then on top of that, when there was um, the museum night, kids, when they saw it, immediately went down on all fours and started playing with the wolves and trying to stroke them. And that was just such a gift. And that made me realize that I could do so much more with it. So for the Alchemy Film and Arts um, call for works, I suggested it as a ceiling projection. I didn't know what would happen. Still not quite sure. I mean, we have to see it tonight. And I also wanted to hone in on this physical connection with the image and there's quite a lot of grass there so initially I proposed a, a grass carpet that's not there but you'll see that it's not just um, an installation with this piece the the windows are actually quite nice and there's a lot of moss there and hopefully you'll be invited to and it also has a smell actually when we, we have to it's a living exhibition we have to spray it with water to keep the moss alive and it smells quite nice so it's a It's a multi-sensory exhibition, I could perhaps call it.
1: And I was interested in, before we sat down to speak today, uh, you said it's maybe good to be taken away from from the space. And I'm always interested at what point an artist like yourself thinks this is ready. We we may open the doors and let people experience now. So um, at what point do you go, yeah, this is how I would like to present the work?
0: I take an enormous amount of time to get my films ready for projection. I am, it's horrible to work with me. (laughs) I love it so much to be utterly precise. I I could take days, Mm -hmm. perfecting just one second less, one second more. Um, And I really, really enjoy that. Um, So I say it's good that you took me away from the space because I would be working right up until the minute the exhibition opens and and there's always something more you can find and do so the reason why you could take me away is because the team that is installing it is really good and they know what they're doing and we've been doing it for the past two days so they know me as well now Mm -hmm. so I have complete faith that it looks completely totally mint when we go in
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and of course the, the film um, was a won a, a jury award at that Ann Arbor Film Festival um, this year uh, I know that your work is widely exhibited but given the significance of the Ann Arbor Film Festival that must have felt quite nice yes
0: <laughs> I, mean, I mean to win the jury award at Ann Arbor Film Festival that's just ridiculous I, and I wasn't there I had to teach I could have been there and i received this email and it said by now you probably know that you've won the jury award at Ann arbor and I, no <laughs> i didn't know that I, i've you know it's that 911 moment yeah i would never forget it that i know exactly where i was yeah it's good
1: The first time you and I met, um, you were presenting a workshop um, specifically for people that were fairly new to filmmaking and as part of your time with Alchemy Film and Arts, you're you're running um, a couple of workshops and sharing your expertise, how important is it for you to um, work with other artists and and, and try and share your approach to, to filmmaking?
0: I think it's very important to work with other artists. I'm not sure how important it is for me to share my experience. <laughs> Maybe I should ask you. Um, but for my practice, it's more important to see how other people work and what their process is. I do actually spend some time uh, listening and watching interviews with people that I respect and to see how they, how they got to the places. For example, Victor Kozakovsky is uh, a huge inspiration and the Scottish Documentary Institute as host. I think they still have interviews with him online. And it's so great that um, uh, you don't feel so alone anymore. Um, and when you're being ridiculously picky or too perfectionistic, And you see someone at work like that. There's also a really good film made about his process. Um, In relation to his film, uh, Vivan Las Antipadas, what's it called? Something... Condor? Something Condor? Something Bird. A really good film. And you you, you see how how he works and how impossible he is to work with sometimes. But then Mm. how humble he is when it does go right. I hope I'm not like that, maybe. A little bit milder. But it goes into that direction i 'm quite sure to share my knowledge i don 't think i 'm particularly knowledgeable, so i don 't that 's not important for me i 'm happy when other people are strengthened by it uh, i like I like sharing it, um, but I can have moments when i don 't want anyone looking at me and I just want to hide so um, and therefore teaching sometimes becomes a bit of a performance mm-hmm. because you can 't decide when you do you want to show yourself, and when you don't want to show yourself, you just always have to show yourself. So you kind of develop this performance, and that can be annoying at times, actually. Um, although I do love teaching, but that's because it feels like working with people. When I'm working with the students, hey, that word again, it doesn't really f- feel like I'm giving them advice, but we're trying to figure out together what it is that they want, or I hope that's how it feels to them. Because every film is unique and every process is unique. And I think becoming a filmmaker is finding out who you are, uh, what you want to say and how you want to tell it. And that's a process that I can help them with, but I can't, I can't tell them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, you have to find out together.
1: And what are you working on behind the scenes? What's going to be the next project from you?
0: I want to develop the Wolf Project into a feature project. A longer form project. There's some work being done there, and then I've got about a million—no, not million—but quite a few other projects I'd like to be doing. I've always said I wanted to make a road film, um, fiction about a female friendship. That's, that's it. That's as vague as that. Fell my own Louise, but new, and something about like swimming, swimming and flying. And then I've been talking to people about rhinoceros, and then I've been talking to people about deep-sea creatures. So there's there's many ideas.
1: It's been really nice to speak to you today. Uh, Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. And you can find links, images, and more information on our website at intothemothlight.com. Until next time, goodbye.
0: into the moth line